The following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. Before we get into our verses for today, let's commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for the message that you have for us this morning. Uh, Our Father, we beg you that your Holy Spirit would come and teach us the things that you would have us to learn, Lord. I pray that you would press into our hearts the need for purity, the need for cleansing, and I pray that your word would go forth um, through this time of teaching, Lord. Uh, We pray these things in your precious name, in the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. We want to go through this passage this morning, and I want to go through it verse by verse, and then I want to get into uh, a time of application where we look at these things um, in this passage, uh, and I want my, my, my hope is to take what we learned today and apply it to living loved, the, uh, the theme that the leadership of this church has chosen for the theme for this year. Because we're going through the book of John, and we're, we're going through the theme of living loved, and we've had a great time of going through uh, the scripture so far this year, and then we come to show you a video of Jesus with a whip driving people out of the temple, and it's kind of like, well, how does that work? I mean, we're living loved, and now we're showing Jesus, the gentle Lamb of God, driving people out of the, out of the temple with a whip. So how do we relate these two? And we're going to see that today, hopefully. So what I'd like to do before we start is just go over the main points. I, I want to set the setting and create the context of what we're seeing here, because a lot of this isn't going to make sense until we understand a little bit about the context of Old Testament worship and how the temple actually was used in the, in, in the worship of God. And then go through the passage. Point number one is setting. Point number two is the problem presented or the problem confronted. The action taken and then the reaction to the action that Jesus take, took. And then we'll have two points of application. Point number one, the setting. It says that Jesus came to the temple. Okay. And our topic is living loved. And we have worship and we have the presence of God. And... When we look at the temple in the context of Old Testament worship, what are we supposed to understand? The picture of the temple is that of three kind of courts. You had an outer court, which was called the court of the Gentiles. And if you converted from being a Gentile to being a Jewish believer, you were allowed into that outer court. And it was absolutely huge. It had a colonnade around it. And you could enter into that court and and pray to God. Beyond that, was a court that you could only pass into as a Jew. Like, you had to be born into a Jewish family. You couldn't just be somebody who converted into Judaism. And it was called the court of the women because both men and women were there. So you'd come in and you'd see both men and women, and they say, oh, well, this is the court of the women because the women are, are allowed in here as well because beyond that, there was an inner court called the court of Israel, and women were not actually permitted in that court except for uh, perhaps certain occasions. So there were all these limitations and regulations around the temple. It was very exclusive. Within the temple uh, courtyard 
inside the, the temple uh, uh, court, inner courtyard of uh, Israel, there was a raised part that was where only the priests approached. And then beyond that, there was the temple itself. Only the priests could go in that. And then inside the temple, there was the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could go in there once a year on the Day of Atonement. Everything in the temple was regulated. Every design of everything that was in there, pretty much, was of divine origin. Especially in the temple proper. Everything there was not only designed a certain way, but it had to be used a certain way within the context of worship. It had to be done. And the implication through all this is God is holy. Anything not commanded was by default forbidden. So if something wasn't commanded, a certain type of sacrifice wasn't commanded, then you weren't supposed to do it. Okay? And if you disobeyed any of those laws, then there were consequences. It was essentially death. Okay? So... That's the kind of context that we're walking into. The holiness of God is, is being manifest in the, in the holy of holies. His manifest presence rested above the Ark of the Covenant. Inside that holy of holies was the Ark of the Covenant with the Ten Commandments and the Rod of Aaron and all these amazing things from the Old Testament. And it was unapproachable. God's presence is to be revered. And when Jesus goes into the temple, this is point number two now, he comes in and he sees something that he, he, does, he, he doesn't like. I'm going, to read the, uh, I'm going to go through the passage bit by bit here. I'm going to read verse 12 through 14 for this particular point. After this, when he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, they stayed for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. And the money changers were sitting there. Where was this? It says in the temple, but it wasn't in the temple proper because that would have been unthinkable. It was, it was really up close to the temple. This, in the readings and studies that I've done, it appears that it was probably right before the temple of the women. It was very close in. Along the colonnade there, it was a very big open space. And that's where they were. They were selling pigeons. They were doing something that wasn't commanded. Now, we in our context, we might look at that and say, okay, they were selling animals. What were they really doing? They were, they were selling them animals that were appropriate for worship because you couldn't just bring any old animal. If it had any flaw at all, it couldn't be sacrificed to God. You were to bring your best. Some people were coming from a long distance, so they didn't want to haul along animals. They could just buy it there in the temple. Also, some of the money that they would brought would have been Roman money with false gods printed on it. They had to change that money out. So this was something that was a business, yes, but it was offered as a convenience to the worshipers of God. And so it was easy to rationalize this and say, well, look, we're, we're carrying on business here, but it's for worship, right? You'll praise the Lord. You know, people are able to come here and they're able to get this stuff done. And then they're, they're coming right into the temple and they're able to, you know, worship in a way that is appropriate for the laws of the Old Testament. Okay? But obedience is greater than sacrifice, isn't it? First Psalm, I, sorry, First Samuel, it says that, chapter 5. Obedience is something that God expects. Leviticus 10, 
Leviticus 13, 14, and 50. Leviticus 10 shows the, the glory of God. When Nadab and Abihu came before the Lord with, with censers that didn't quite have the right kind of myrrh or the fire didn't come from the right place. Nobody even knows exactly what they did wrong. God actually strikes them dead because he is interested in obedience. And when he is not being o- obeyed, then it, it, what it does is it profanes the temple and it profanes his name. And Jesus is coming in here and he's, he's noticing these things. He's noticing these things. And, and when we approach this passage, one of the things that we need to ask ourselves is, are we noticing things? When we come into the presence of God and we come into worship in a context of worship, do we notice things? And when we do notice things, do we just kind of like put them out of our mind and just say, well, that's okay. I'm sure somebody knows about that. I mean, and just rationalize and rationalize and rationalize. Is that, is that where we've gone? Because how many people had to have rationalized within the context of the temple as far as priests, Sanhedrin, and all these other rulers of the Jewish people? How many people had to, had to rationalize this to the point where nobody was saying anything about it? It was beyond the point where somebody was going to say something about it. Jesus was going to do something about it. And that brings me to my second point, the action taken. Verse 15. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with sheep, with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. So Jesus goes in there and starts to create or make a whip. It doesn't say what he made it out of, perhaps leather or whatever, but he, he starts putting together a whip. He doesn't buy one. He doesn't borrow one. He actually takes the time to make a whip. And I think that's an important point to, to, to point out because this shows how premeditated this action was. This wasn't Jesus going in there and being like, that's it. And just losing his mind, just, just losing his temper in a moment of passion and doing something that's actually really inconsistent with how a believer should behave. Jesus comes in there, we wouldn't think of that of Christ anyway, but Jesus has probably been thinking about this for a while, at least as long as it takes to make a whip, right? Which I don't know how long that would take, but I don't think it would be something that you, you could just do, right? If it's going to be effective, right? So he makes a whip. And then he starts to drive people and animals out of the temple, and his disciples are watching this. They don't participate. Jesus is willing to go into this alone. He's he's willing to step out and take action, whether or not anybody else joins him in his fight for the purity of God's worship. Okay? Maybe he could have recruited some disciples that were there. He hadn't called all 12 yet. It doesn't appear. Right? Maybe he could have been like, well, I got a couple of these guys following me. Maybe I can, you know, sneak around the, have them sneak around the back and force them, you know, force them out. No, him as a single solitary human being, God in wrapped in flesh as a man with a man's body, a man's emotions, a man's mind, limiting his divinity into a human form was capable of driving all those people and animals out of the temple. That's pretty impressive. Because we're talking about sheep, oxen, and pigeons. The pigeons I can understand. Oxen, right? Money changers. Have you ever tried to separate 
somebody from their money? I'm getting ahead of myself. That's not easy, okay? But Jesus, with commitment and zeal and anger, takes this action. Are we able to take action? Are we willing to take action? Are we, are we willing to even think about taking action when it comes to the purity of God's worship and his presence? That takes courage. That takes a lot of courage. Has there ever been a time in your life where you knew God wanted you to take action and you were just like, ah, I don't know. I don't know if I, and, and all of a sudden that's, in that moment, that's when the rationalization starts. John 5, 19 says, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing for whatever the father does that the son does does likewise. So we know that Jesus wasn't just doing this on his own. This was the will of his father. He was so connected to what his father was doing. He saw that said, father, should I take action? The answer was yes. And he took action. The reaction. For every action, there is a reaction. Okay? So, verse 17 through 22. I'm going to read the rest of the passage here. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise it up. Raise it up. The Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. So reaction number one is everybody runs. Everybody's out of the temple. They're just moving. It probably was such a chaotic scene, perhaps even more chaotic than that video, because these animals, they showed a little little kind of small small animals. I didn't see any oxen there. Oxen maybe had horns. Some of these sheep were actually rams, and they had the, you know, the curly horns. Like, this could have been a real scene of chaos, okay? And it's not that Jesus wanted to create chaos, but the reaction that he got was success in that he cleansed the temple, they ran out. And like I said, people don't just run uh, away from their money as it's being strewn about and coins just kind of like rolling everywhere. I'm sure there were probably passers-by like trying to pick up. Like, I mean, people aren't just going to run away from their own money. It would take a a level of commitment that probably... We, we rarely have in our own lives a, a, a level of courage and of commitment that he wasn't going to stop until it was completely empty. Can you imagine if uh, God came to you and, and said to you, I, I want you to go and I want you to cleanse the farmer's market. I want you to get all those people out. Just get them out. And you'd be like, ah, oh, Lord, <laughs> they're doing a service. It would be a difficult thing. Like, that's a lot of people, a lot of money. You wouldn't be able to do that without the power of God. And I don't believe Jesus did that without the power of the Holy Spirit. His, his, his presence manifesting the Father's will and the, and, the, and the presence of God. And, like, God is calling us into these kind of things. Things that we couldn't do on our own, right? Things that, we, that, that just seem unthinkable. That's reaction number one. Reaction number two, his disciples reminded of the scripture. 
for zeal of your house has consumed me. That in uh, in the actual it words, it's slightly different, but that it comes from Psalm 69, verse 9. For zeal of your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. In the psalm, the psalmist is seeking God, and he's seeking repentance and purity, and he's going through hard times, and he feels like everything is against him. And the more he seeks the Lord, the more people persecute him. It's it's, it's almost like the reproach that the people of God have against God are now put on him because he's seeking the Lord. And and so his disciples, they're trying to make sense out of this. They're like, you know, we're following this rabbi. We just started, we saw him in the in the wedding of Cana, right? And they're just coming from that. The passage is very clear. They're just coming down. They went from Cana to Capernaum to Jerusalem. And turning water into wine, that's great. But now we're following this rabbi who is disrupting the temple. So what do we do with that? They're searching for answers. And the only thing that they can, they can come up with is this verse. And it's very informative because the verse, speaking of somebody who is willing to take on reproaches from men based on the fact that they are seeking the Lord and they are seeking purity, that's kind of what goes on. When you're seeking, when you're seeking the purity of God and the purity of worship, there are consequences. Are you willing to accept that there are consequences? Because there will be consequences. If you, if you seek God and you seek the purity of worship, then there will be consequences. Are you willing to accept those consequences? Because reaction number three is the consequence of Jesus's integrity being called into question. It says the Jews came to him. It says the Jews here. It could have included the authorities. As I said in the, in the video, the Jewish authorities came to him. It may be that they're mixing it up with the second time that Jesus cleansed the temple because he goes on to cleanse the temple, the temple a second time. But the Jews coming to him, the chaos, in that chaos they come and they demand a sign because to do this would have really angered the crowd. There's, a, there's many different there's many different movies that you can watch. There's the greatest story ever told. There's the, 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 the Jesus film, the, the film that's been translated into many, many other languages. I like that film in that there's a crowd that come to him and just demand. It's like an angry mob. And now Jesus has to answer to the mob. And the mob can be very, very dangerous. We see that throughout the New Testament, people getting beaten by a mob. Jesus being, you know, they demand that Jesus gets crucified and they're a mob. And they come to him demanding a sign. Jesus is not intimidated by them. He is so filled with the Spirit. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And I love the way the actor portrayed that, because he is, he is not at all intimidated by the authorities, the Sanhedrin, the priests, the people, and all of the trappings of the temple. He's not intimidated by that. He's concerned with doing the will of his father. And that's it. He doesn't, he's not, he's not trying to get everybody else's approval. He's not trying to save his own neck. He's trying to purify God's worship. And is that where we are? Or are we wrapped up with our own kingdom trying to follow off of things that we want to do and preserving our own life? Because in that moment, he could have been like, oh man, what have I done now? Oh, I, I'm so sorry. I, I apologize. Issue an apology, all this stuff. 
He doesn't back down. He doesn't apologize. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Well, it's kind of confusing, right? Because it goes on to say that he wasn't even talking about the temple. He was talking about his body. So Jesus is concerned about the gospel here. He's not concerned with signs and wonders and tear down Herod's temple and then build it back up in three days. He's not concerned with that. He wants people to understand, his disciples primarily, that he is going to rise again, that there's a resurrection coming. You see this so many times in Jesus' ministry. Somebody will ask him a question and he redirects to something spiritual. Somebody asks him a question about uh, the here and now and, and life and, and death and, and, and physical things, money and all this stuff. And Jesus is like, I'm going to talk about this. Why do you call me good? There's none good but our Father in heaven. And he, reads, he, he redirects them in this moment to something that could have easily been misunderstood. He doesn't even bother explaining himself. He just turns and walks away. And then later, his disciples, so many times when he's talking, he's talking to his disciples, the people who would come and actually believe in him and be able to understand that the things that he had said had a spiritual meaning. Are we doing that? Are we so focused on the here and now and our careers and our money and all this other stuff that we're missing what God is really saying to us? He's saying things to us that have a spiritual interpretation. It's on a spiritual dimension. He has no fear. Proverbs twenty nine twenty five: the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. We're so afraid of what other people think. But what they think doesn't matter. Hebrews 13.6. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? They can't do anything. They're just men. Jesus says, don't fear him who can kill the body. Luke chapter 12. But fear him who can kill, not only kill the body, but also send the soul to hell. Fear him. And we know that we're not characterized by fear because we are believers. If we've, if we've been saved by grace and we're walking in the presence of God, we don't have that kind of fear. We are kept in perfect peace. Isaiah 26, 3 through 4, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. So if your mind is in the right place, you don't have time to fear. Jesus was in communion with the Father. He was walking in the Spirit. And when those people came to Him, the only thing He could say were things that had to do with spiritual realities. He didn't have time to think, think about all of what their might, reaction might be and all of the things that they might say or think or misinterpret. Oh, I'm going to say something about my body and about my resurrection, but what if they don't understand? And what if they think I'm actually talking about the temple? And we are just so much, unlike Christ, we're so much like that, where we are so consumed with what other people think and them misinterpreting what we say that we don't say anything. That's where we live, a lot of us. That's where we live. And Jesus is calling us to something higher, 
something much, much higher. You know you don't have to be afraid? Isn't that great? When your mind is in the right place, your heart doesn't have to be blown about with all these other considerations. You can be at peace with your Father. And, and if you've walked with the Lord for any amount of time, you know that there are times where the peace of the pastor's understanding comes upon you. And you know, you know that you know that you know that just God is with you and there's nothing anybody can say about it. There's nothing anybody else can do. Now, two main points of application. And I'm glad I, have, I, I still have a good amount of time now because this is kind of the main meat of this because I haven't really I haven't really dove in to the significance of what I did a little bit but the significance of what Christ did here in the context of the temple and what the temple really means but before we go on we have to settle in our minds that no matter what God wants us to do no matter what it means we're going to do we may not know what God has for us in the future You know, God may have a missionary calling on your life in the future, and you don't even know yet. God may want to call you into the ministry, and you don't even know yet. But the important thing is that right now, you're willing to say, I'm going to do whatever God tells me to do. Whatever his spirit reveals to me as his will for my life, I will do in his strength and by the by the grace of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit. So two points of application, uh, and they have to do with the temple, because the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70, but the temple is still here. It's still here. It was just the designation of what we consider the temple has now shifted from a physical building to a spiritual building, and the New Testament has a... a Actually, a lot to say about the temple that now exists. Okay? So, it's actually two different things. And in the first point, I'll cover the first thing, which is the temple is the church. And then in my second point, I'll cover the teaching of the New Testament that the temple is actually us as an individual. It's our body. Jesus says, destroy this temple. He was talking about his body. Our body is the temple. Where in the New Testament does... The Bible teach that the church is actually the temple now. First Peter 2, verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices. See, that's the language of the temple, sacrifices. Acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So each one of us is a living stone being built together into a church, which is being built as a temple. And the aspect that means that with the temple, the aspect in which we are the temple is that we are offering spiritual sacrifices, just like they in the Old Testament offered burnt offerings and and, and animal sacrifices from their material wealth. We're offering spiritual sacrifices Again, Ephesians 2, verse 18 through 22. For through him, 
We both have access in one spirit to the Father. Verse 18. Access. That's something different. Right? We saw the court of the Gentiles, and the court of the women, then the court of Israel, and then the priests, and then only the high priest. And it's kind of like more and more exclusive. Now we have access. Verse 19. So then you no longer are strangers and aliens, but now you are fellow citizens with the saints with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So, when we come together, there's a special presence of God manifested in the corporate gathering of the saints. And each one of us are living stones being built into a holy habitation for the Holy Spirit of God. Isn't that amazing? So, Jesus is our high priest, right? That's the whole book of Hebrews and all these things. The high priest was an inter- intermediary between the nation of Israel and God. And that was to pre-show as a type how Christ is an intermediary between God and man, mankind. And this is his temple. And if Jesus were to come here, he is here. He is here in his spirit, intimately associated with everything that's going on here. What do you think he thinks of our worship? Because he came to his house, his father's house, and he was displeased with some things that he saw there. He chose to target a certain thing that is bringing something that is common into a holy place, and he drove that out. But what about us? How does it apply to us? We're a church here and we're offering spiritual sacrifices. Are we pure in our worship? Are there thi- or are there things here that Jesus wants to drive out? And I think God is, is asking us to ask that question. To ask that question of God. To ask that question of our great high priest, Jesus Christ, say, Dear God, is there anything here that we need to be removing? That you need to come in your Holy Spirit power and drive out from our midst. If Jesus were to come here, and he is here, keep saying that. If he were to come here, he is here. But if he were to write us a letter, what would it say? It's an interesting question, isn't it? In the book of Revelation, John had a vision of Jesus, and Jesus instructed him to write letters to churches, actual churches that existed in Asia Minor. Seven different letters, and I wish I could read them all, but I'm going to read a couple of them because they can be very, very applicable to us. In Revelation 2, 1 through 5, Jesus instructs John to write a letter to the church in Ephesus. And he says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, 
the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. That was symbolic for the churches. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but you have tested those who call themselves to be a call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently, you are enduring patiently, and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. It's a lot of encouragement there. But I have this against you. That you have abandoned your first, the, the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So Jesus is great. He is this great high priest, intimately associated with everything that going, that's going on in his church. And he writes this letter to the Ephesians and he says, you're doing all these great things. Praise the Lord. They were standing for the, the truth. They were standing for what was, what was right. But they had lost their first love. And if the, the church is supposed to be a temple of God offering true sacrifices of worship, and you've lost your first love, well then what does that mean that you're bringing into worship? You're bringing common things into worship because the, the thing that's, that's actually the temple is, is what's in the hearts of the worshipers. And if they've lost their first love, that means they're loving something else. They're loving something else above God. He says, yet I have this against you. Wouldn't it break your heart if, if, if God wrote a letter to us and he said, yet I have this against you. And that's my heart is that we wouldn't have anything because not all the, not all the churches in Revelation had things that were said against them. The church in Philadelphia, the church in Smyrna. Like they were just doing a great, they were following the Lord with all their heart. And Jesus didn't say anything to them. No rebukes, no correction. But the, some of these churches were really, really losing their focus. And they were coming to God as a temple. And they were offering worship that needed to be cleansed. Look at Revelation three fourteen through 20. And to the church, the angel of Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful, true, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because, that, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit, out, spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, Pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself. And the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door... I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. You see how Jesus is postured. I stand at the door and I knock. Jesus wants fellowship with his church. He wants pure worship. But when you're lukewarm, you've got all these other things coming in and choking out the fire that he intends for us to have in our worship. Is, he, is any of us sensing that that may be something that we struggle with in here? I'm not saying that I think that. 
I'm not saying that this church needs to be rebuked. I'm just saying that I believe Jesus is calling us to ask the question and come before him humbly and say, Lord, make us a temple that's pure in its worship. Pure. If there's anything that doesn't belong here, let us know by your spirit. Let get it, let's get it out. Let's get it out. And I think we've probably all been to churches where they really clearly struggle with that. They've got elements in the worship that's like really like not appropriate. But a lot of times that's not really the issue, is it? It's not bad jokes and crazy songs and things like that. It's not the outward things are not necessarily the issues. The issues are actually the what's going on in the hearts of the worshipers as they come into the worship service and they're thinking about everything else except for the words that are on the screen that they're supposed to be singing. And they ha- they're just they're so far. They're, their heart, their their words are with them, but their hearts are far from me, Jesus says. And it's like, is that us? Is that any of us? Are we coming in here where we're like, you know, just kind of putting on a show? And we're just kind of, you know, going through the motions. There's a worship song about that, going through the motions. You know, if that's any of us, we have to repent with zeal. We need to ask Jesus to come with his zeal and cleanse our worship. Because it's really not going to get done any other way, is it? It's not going to get done with us being like, oh, well, well, Rob said that, you know, I shouldn't be thinking about other things during the, no, 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 no. Doesn't, it doesn't come with us just being like, well, I guess I'll, I'll try to do a little bit better. It's zealous repentance and God, please change me. I can't change myself. Come into my life. Fill me with your spirit and make me a worshiper when they, when, when, when I, when I step into the corporate worship of God Almighty, that I come with clean hands and a pure heart and a mind that is absolutely focused on you. Point number two. In the New Testament, the individual is also the temple. The temple is you as an individual. Not just as a church corporately, but when you walk out of here, you're still a temple. You're still in the presence of God. The, the, the unmixed uh, uh manifestation and presence of Almighty God that was in uh, in the Old Testament in the Holy of Holies is now in your heart because God in His infinite mercy when, when we're saved gives us His Holy Spirit. And He didn't do that in the Old Testament, right? His Spirit would rest upon certain individuals for certain jobs, but the indwelling required the sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice from Jesus Christ and the resurrection And Jesus said, it's going to be good for you that I leave. Because if I don't leave, the comforter won't come. And when I leave, the comforter will come. And he will lead you into all truth. And now, if you're saved, you're you're indwelled. I almost said filled. Indwelled with the Holy Spirit. The command is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So that indwelling that's been given to you as a gift, it needs to fill you. Filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't fill you if you've got a million other idols crowding in that you're worshiping. Doesn't fill you. That's why it's a command and not just a statement of fact. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. 
And again, 1 Corinthians six nineteen through 20. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. How is your temple? How is the temple of your body? If somebody brought something that was unclean into the temple, it was defiled. The temple was defiled and needed to be cleansed by various descriptions in Leviticus. And I can't help but ask that question. Have you defiled your temple? In the context of 1 Corinthians 6, he was specifically talking about sexual sin because sexual sin defiles the temple. There will invariably be things that you find in your heart as you grow in Christ that need to be cleansed from your heart. Addictions, laziness, anger, hate, lust, pornography, gossip, obsession with how other people view you and not making Christ your identity, being offended, addicted to a victim mentality, and that's your identity, unloving, being strifeful, selfish, unkindness, defensiveness, and pride. Is that any of us? Because if it is, then our hearts need to be cleansed. They need to be cleansed. Are you coming before God with other things in your heart that compete? When you look at those seven letters, I wish, I, like I said, I wish I could have read them all, but I, I just can't. But, they, but you, you have uh, the letter to the church in Ephesus and Smyrna and Thyatira and Pergamum and, 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 and Sardis and Laodicea and Philadelphia, those seven. And if you look at the sins and the rebukes that God um, lists against them, you can kind of put them under three different categories. They're generally leaving God's uh, or, or leaving your first love, sexual immorality and spiritual lethargy. When you commit sexual fornication in 1 Corinthians 6.18, every other sin, it says, a person commits is on the outside of the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And then it goes on to say in verse 19, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Do you have sexual sin in your life? If you do, you need cleansing from Almighty God. Repentance and zeal is something that Jesus is calling you into. To partner with him. To drive out those things that are in your, in your temple. In the Holy of Holies of your heart. That doesn't belong there. It doesn't belong there. A, 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 the last one's actually the one that almost scares me the most. They're all awful. <clears throat> Losing your, your first love is probably the worst. But the one that scares me the most is spiritual lethargy. Because spiritual lethargy comes on so slowly. And it just feels like a numbness that pervades your heart. And instead of coming into the worship where you're filled with joy, you're just cold. And you're kind of like, well, I mean, I didn't do anything wrong. And it's like outwardly, maybe you look pretty good. But that's not what God requires. He requires us to be filled with his Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, and all these things. 
supplication. <clears throat> All these things God is expecting from his worshipers. That's what he's expecting from us. Spiritual lethargy is, is one of those things that has to be cleansed. And, and Jesus says in his love and his kindness to the church in Sardis, you are dying and you are about to be dead. Repent. Repent. He's talking spiritually, of course. He's talking spiritually. That the church was just dying. So what's the solution? How do we drive these things out? Jesus drives them out. Not you. And many times the Bible talks about, like, well, you need to clean it out. You need to clean it out. But it's understood within the context of what is spoken that you really can't. In fact, maybe you should go ahead and try so you realize how power, powerless you are. Go ahead and just try it all on your own. And then when you come to God, you'll come with a heart of humility and say, God, I need you. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You can do all things. Do you really believe that? Do you feel that? Do you feel that? If you don't feel that, it might be because you don't actually believe that because you have a hard past. You know, and you've tried before and it just didn't work. And I prayed before and it didn't work. And I repented before and it didn't work. But God is inviting us. He never said it would take overnight. He never said that. He just said, come to me. All you who are weary and are heavy laden. As we said, come to me. He didn't say, come to me and like in five seconds, I'll just solve all your problems. That's not what he said. It's in knowing him. And we all with unveiled face, this is 2 Corinthians 3.18, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image. See how we're supposed to be coming like Christ? Now, now as he's got the whip, we're being transformed into the same image. And it's not a whip whipping people and animals now. This is driving out impurity from our own hearts. Driving out idols, driving out weakness, driving out fear, driving out powerlessness. All the things that we hate anyway. We want to get rid of those things. And when we get rid of those things, we're filled with the Holy Spirit and we have more power than we ever thought we would ever have. Isn't that the life you want to live? You want to live a life that's filled with fruit of the Holy Spirit. Filled with, with things that you have been able to um, just offer to the Lord ministries and all this other stuff. Not that it's all about ministry, but it's about, it's about just glorifying him and making him famous, as Pastor Colin loves to say. 2 Timothy 2.20-21. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but there are also of wood and clay. Some are of honorable use, some are dishonorable. <clears throat> Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself, temple language, <clears throat> from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful for the master's, for, <clears throat> useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. And it goes on in the next verse to say, Therefore, flee youthful passions. I believe God is inviting us in to his presence and inviting us to be cleansed. Jesus wants to give you everything, everything. 
It says in the Bible, if he, if he gave us his son, how much more will he also give us all things? But we want to get all things our way a lot of times, don't we? And it becomes an idol. I believe as the worship team comes, we need to have some dealings with our high priest in a joyful way and invite him in to cleanse the temple because when he cleanses your temple, it's in love. It's not the angry face there. He's just angry at what sin's done to you, right? He's angry at the fact that sin is robbing us of our of our calling and our purpose and our and our love and our and everything that we could be in him. To come to him and ask him to cleanse you and, and enter into that ministry with him, to cleanse through his power. Praise the Lord. Thank you for listening to this message from Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org.